Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. With us is Andy Harris, who is a legal reporter for Bloomberg News and joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Khan Nowaday, former corruption and fraud prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York and a partner at Venable. Uh, Khan, I want to start with you. What was your biggest takeaway from those statements? I, I think the big takeaway take is you know, Bob Mueller is a consummate professional. He speaks through his indictments and through his report. And that's very clear from his statement. If you noticed, he kept quoting from the indictments, from what the grand jury returned. And he said, basically, I speak as a prosecutor, as a law enforcement officer, through my report and through my charging documents. And that's all you're going to get from me. So, Con, I think one of the interesting aspects from his commentary was that uh, uh, did not believe that he could or the office could indict. Uh, a sitting president. What is your understanding of that? Is that a is that a constitutional issue? Is it a DOJ policy issue? Because uh, I know there's certainly some question about that. It's DOJ policy based on a reading of the Constitution, and that's been DOJ policy for quite some time. Um, what what I find interesting is you have AG Barr, Attorney General Barr, on the one hand, being surprised that Bob Mueller didn't reach a conclusion, a prosecutorial conclusion. Uh, implying that he could. And on the other hand, Bob Mueller, Mueller uh, hewing close to DOJ policies and playing the role of a prosecutor. Andy, come on in here. What was your takeaway from this, uh, these comments? Well, tagging on to that observation, I think that the uh, special counsel's remark that, quote, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so, is pregnant with portent. Uh, it, it, it runs expressly counter to the president's no obstruction, no collusion narrative and infers that he's been anything but cleared, but that the special counsel believed that there was some other process for addressing that, i.e. Congress and potentially the unspoken I-word impeachment. So this was, as low-key as it was, uh, something of a rebuttal to the president and to his allies who have said that he's been cleared. So, Khan, do you believe that, or do you believe that uh, Special Counsel Mueller will be called in front of Congress to testify? And if so, you know, is he going to expand anywhere outside of the scope of that uh, agreement or, or findings? Well, Paul, you, you just heard him. He basically said he's going to hew very closely to the report, and that's what he's going to do. So, I think he's signaling to Congress, you know. Call me, but that's all you're getting. Well, but but Andy raises a really good point, which is, yes, he was hewing closely to the report, but he curated the statements that he made from said report. And, and really that one statement saying if he believed, if the group had believed the president had committed no crime, they would have said so. Is that the key takeaway from this report? And does that uh, indicate uh, that he's sort of nudging other parts of government to take action? Uh I, I absolutely agree with you because he is a shrewd man. He's very wise. And he picked very few words to say today. And that was one of the words he said. Those words about how, guess what, everybody? Going back to that report, headline, I couldn't say, and I can't say today, that the president didn't commit a crime. So, Andy, what is the feeling within the Beltway here? What, are you, what is your sense of what how Democrats will maybe take this 
commentary, the statement from uh, Mr. Mueller uh, as it relates to kind of how they view the presidency, whether it, you know, uh, continued oversight or even the, the impeachment proceedings? Well, it could tie House Democrats and not knots. Obviously, uh, Speaker Pelosi has been under substantial pressure from some factions in the House to initiate impeachment proceedings immediately. Uh, Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler has been trying to get a less redacted version of the report, plus the underlying uh, evidentiary materials that uh, were gathered up by the special counsel's office. Um, Clearly, there's it's almost a volcanic pressure uh, to do something in response to this. But an impeachment is tantamount to a criminal proceeding brought by Congress, as we saw during President Clinton's term. And you can't really initiate this. You can't go off half-cocked. you got to have your gun loaded. you got to know what the evidence is before you can start casting allegations. This will no doubt ramp up the pressure uh, on Speaker Pelosi. It may even ramp up the pressure on Attorney General Barr and the Justice Department to turn over some of the information that the uh, – House Judiciary Committee is demanding. So, Khan, I'm wondering about uh, Attorney General William Barr and his role in this, the idea that uh, Robert Mueller was sort of contradicting some of the things that uh, William Barr had said about uh, being surprised that they didn't come to some sort of recommendation. What do you make of uh, Attorney General Barr's performance up to date and and, and what his likely response will be? Um, So, taking your your, your first question, uh, question. Uh, you know, I, I think Attorney General Barr is in a tough position. Um, I think both Bob Mueller and Attorney General Barr are coming at this situation from a viewpoint of how to be fair. And uh, Bob Mueller just said, listen, the reason we didn't say that the president c- committed a crime is because we can't charge him. And that's unfair, right, to say somebody committed a crime and then there's no court, there's no criminal case for the president to defend himself. I can imagine... Attorney General Barr having the flip side of that, uh, saying, listen, you have this report with all this stuff in it, and you didn't say either way what your viewpoint was. And now this report will be out there, so I'm going to have to say, listen, there's not enough to charge obstruction. Because that, the report itself, is unfair. So I, I think there are two ways to, to look at that. Um, from Attorney General Barr's perspective, trying to be fair to the president by saying, well, this report is out there. They're going to want to know what does DOJ think. Um, so it's unfair to him if I don't say something. So, Khan, what do you think your former colleagues in the Southern District of New York are going to do next? Um, they're going to keep doing what they do every day, which is investigate, investigate crimes. Um, I think uh, Bob Mueller just made a very important point by saying, you know, the OLC opinion allows us to investigate the president. And this is an investigation that should have happened. So that kind of insulates that investigation. At the same time, the prosecutors in Southern District of New York, they're investigating uh, things related to Manafort. They're, they've just charged the, uh, the banker with uh, bribery uh, who is involved with Manafort. Um, they have other investigations going on. And those will continue. Those will continue beyond this presidency. Uh, Andy, I'm wondering, we are expecting to hear from Attorney General Barr within the next few weeks. Isn't that so? I believe that we are. Of course, you know, again, this is a very fraught relationship that the Attorney General has right now uh, with House Democrats. So it'll be interesting to see in what context we do hear uh, a committee there. I believe it was a Judiciary Committee actually voted to hold the Attorney General in contempt for spurning a uh, 
subpoena to appear before them. That has not yet gone to the full House for a vote, so it's kind of hanging out there in the ether. But at some point, in some format, we will likely hear from the AG. And just do we have a sense of what Attorney General Barr's reputation is, sort of how his comments have been perceived and, and sort of what you're hearing from the legal community? Boy, that's really an eye of the beholder question. Yeah, this isn't his first go around as Attorney General. He uh, also served under the administration of President George Herbert Walker Bush. And where on the one hand, some people see him as a dedicated and experienced lawman and a good choice for the job. On the other hand, uh, people from across the aisle look at him as somebody who is a partisan. And I think it was William Sapphire at one point called him general cover-up. So Barr's reputation is, again, depending on who's looking at him and whether or not the glass is half empty or half full. Andy Harris, uh, thank you so much. Andy Harris, Bloomberg Legal Reporter, joining us and giving his thoughts on the uh, Mueller statement. Uh, Joining us right now is uh, Tim O'Brien, executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion. And staying with us is Ken Nowaday, former corruption and fraud prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York and a partner at Venable LLP. So, Tim, just love to get your takeaway from uh, the statement by Mr. Mueller. I don't think he was saying anything particularly new. I think uh, he clearly used this opportunity to talk about the fact that his investigation was wrapped up and that he was moving on to emphasize what he think was was important about his work. And to me, the two things that popped out were uh, obstruction of justice uh, undermines the core mission of a law enforcement investigation. And, and I think he chose to emphasize that perhaps because the attorney general, William Barr, did not. Uh, especially when he first rolled out the Mueller report's findings. I think, secondly, he made a very, I think, uh, trenchant point about the fact that if they could have absolved the president of not committing a crime, they would have done so. On the other hand, they didn't feel it was within their power to charge the president with a crime. And I think that that really highlights, again, the second uh, half of the Mueller report, which focused in great detail and at great length on obstruction of justice issues. And I think that that's going to be one of the things that lingers over analysis of the Mueller report, analysis of what Bob Mueller chose to do and not to do, and and why uh, the attorney general took the actions he did. In your view, does this change the political calculus at all in terms of what Congress does with the Mueller report? Uh, well, I think there's two things here that, that, that make that a difficult question, Lisa. I think the first is th- there's a political analysis as, as to whether or not impeaching the president or going down a more hardcore path um, presents political problems for the Democrats in 2020. And that's certainly what Nancy Pelosi is, is weighing in all of this. On the other hand, we are a nation of laws. And, and we live in the idea that there is a rule of law and no one is above the law. And if laws have been broken... Justice should be meted out. And so there's a second piece of this that should just correspond with what the laws tell us to do. And to a certain extent, these things are knocking heads, the political calculus of 2020 versus what we should do as a nation of laws. And I'm just wondering, Khan, come on in here, because a nation of laws, it definitely does go to Congress. But there is a question of what other courts could do uh, and what other prosecutorial offices could do uh, if it is uh, not possible to indict a sitting president through the legal system. So uh, that raises a question about some of the investigations at SDNY, right? Uh, that's a- that's absolutely right. Um, you know, beyond the, the investigations that 
the Southern District of New York has going on, um, charge cases and, and other kinds of cases. Um, there's also the New York Attorney General's office is being very aggressive with going after Trump uh, or the, the Trump Organization, as well as people related to the Trump Organization. So, um, you know, that if people investigate things, uh, that's what prosecutors do. And there is, the report shows, the Mueller report shows, there's a lot to investigate. And there's a lot to do. There are a lot of trails to go down. And uh, once you open an investigation, it's very hard to close. Um, it's, e it's easier to open one than close one because you have people invested and people follow trails. People do their jobs. So, Tim, what do you think the response will be from the president to Mr. Mueller's statement? I imagine that they'll say, but again, I don't know, but that, that Robert Mueller came out to say that this investigation is over and it's time to move on. That's what the president has said consistently. Uh, a more colloquial version of that would be get over it. Um, but the reality, again, is that there are facts left that need to be explored, I think, around uh, financial conflicts of interest, actions taken by the president and members of his team during the 2016 election as it pertains to obstruction of justice during the transition into the White House and thereafter that are still unresolved. Any idea what the Republican response will be? Just real quick. Uh, get over it. Get over it. Yeah, so they're going to they're be, gonna stay behind the president. They've been very consistent and, and, and solid on their messaging around this. I really appreciate both of you being here with us uh, today. It really is an interesting conclusion uh, to a, a very high-profile case. Understated, perhaps, but uh, trenchant is a great word. Uh, really, every word that uh, Bob Mueller speaks, incredibly powerful. Tim O'Brien, uh, thank you so much for being here with us, executive editor, uh, columnist, uh, all things having to do with President Trump and uh, everything related for Bloomberg Opinion. Also, uh, Khan Nowaday, thank you so much for being with us, former corruption and fraud prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York and a partner at Venable LLP. But first, let's take a look at the bond market. Bond yields continue to grind lower. The yield curve is inverted. The question for many investors is, does this mean a recession is imminent? To answer that and other issues, we will speak to our good friend, Jim Bianco. Jim is president and founder of Bianco Research. He's also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion based in Chicago. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. So do you think the Fed will heed these warnings of inverted yield curve and so on and cut rates or will they risk creating a recession? That's a good question, and um, they should heed the warnings. It's a market signal that policy is too tight. But if you look at their public statements over the last couple of weeks, the vast majority of Federal Reserve officials have said that they do not see a need to cut rates anytime soon, and a couple of them are even still talking about that the next move would be a hike. So I would like them to listen to this statement or to this market signal, that policy is too tight. That's why the yield curve inverts. If the yield curve stays inverted for a protracted period of time, it just can cumulatively weighs on the economy until you potentially get a recession. The way you steepen the yield curve is you cut short-term interest rates. I hope the Fed listens to that and, and does that exact thing. 
Well, Jim, it depends which yield curve you look at, because actually there are different stories being told depending on where in the curve you look. Yes, we are seeing an inversion in the 10-year, three-month curve, but further out, not so much. In fact, you're seeing a steepening. The the extra yield investors are getting to own 30-year treasuries over 10-year treasuries has actually increased a little bit. So why should we pay attention to that one uh, that is sort of uh, what people are, are worried about right now? You're right that the 30-year yield is is got a massive steepening. It's 45 basis points, almost half a percent higher than the 10-year note. But the 30-year tends to be kind of a special trading vehicle with not as much economic implication as, say, the 10-year and the three-month do. Most economic studies have been done on the 10-year and the three-month. It's been modeled off of the, that yield curve, and that one seems to play the best with giving us an economic signal. The, the signals you'll get from the, bat, from the far end of the curve, like the 30-year, 10-year spread, tend to be more technically driven about flows and about trader sentiment and a lot of things that do not directly impact the economy. That's why I focus on that 10-year, three-month curve as much as I do. So, Jim, the yield curve inverted earlier this year. It's, it's inverted now. But how, is there a certain time period where in terms of duration, that it starts to get your attention and you think it should get the market's attention? Yes. I've used 10 consecutive days, and we're in day four right now. Back in March, we got to five days, and then it uninverted. Now, why do I use that conceptually? What I'm trying to say here is the yield curve is inverted today. It means policy is too tight today. It means policy was too tight yesterday. If it continues week after week, month after month, and I'll use 10 consecutive days because once you start getting into that room, you usually don't uninvert it. But if you stay inverted for a month or two months or three months, the cumulative effect of saying policy's too tight every single day starts to weigh on the economy. It can handle a couple of weeks of it, could maybe handle a month of it. But beyond that, you start getting into problems. And what I found is after 10 days, that usually is a good enough signal that usually it means we're inverted, we're going to stay there, and it will continue on until the Fed changes policy. So what actually happened to trigger this latest bout of yield tightening? I mean, honestly, we've been talking about trade concerns for a while. Morgan Stanley coming out this morning and saying that actually some of these jitters began well before that and port- and foretell a downturn that would have happened regardless of trade. Do you agree? Yeah, uh, I I do agree with that, and I think that what's changed is the perception on inflation. And the answer is there isn't any, and there's none coming. And now we've got crude oil prices, which is a big input to headline inflation falling, and it also has an additive effect on core inflation as well, too. Most economists will say, look, the Fed's not going to uh, cut rates. Look at the economy. The economy's fine. That's not what the market's looking at. The market's looking at no inflation at all. Now you've got falling crude oil prices. Maybe, uh, as Gary Schilling wrote in a Bloomberg Opinion column yesterday, and I thought he made a credible case, trade wars and tariffs could maybe even be deflationary for the economy, too. If that's going to depress inflation, then I think that's what the market's focused on, saying, look, you've got very low inflation. That's what's restrictive about interest rates, and that's why you need to cut. It's not about real GDP uh, at this point. So, Jim, the the Fed has said pretty consistently recently that it is data dependent. What data are you looking at? What what data are you putting into your model? I'm looking at the inflation data right now. I think that that is the data that is going to that is driving why the yield curve is inverted, why the Fed fund futures are saying that there will be a hike. Excuse me, a cut in September. So, I'm looking at 
the inflation compensation from the from the uh, Treasury inflation protected securities market or the tips market. I'm looking at a lot of the inflation numbers as well too. Some of the surveys uh, and it's uh, and the price of crude oil because that is a big input into what people's perceptions are of inflation. And all of that is going down right now, especially overseas. In Europe, you're at multi-year lows in some of those market measures of inflation expectations, uh, screaming at Mario Draghi that he should be considering something as well, too, in terms of cutting rates or easing policy. So those are the inputs I'm looking at, and all these inflation expectation and actual inflation numbers are heading lower, and that's why this market wants a cut. We're speaking with Jim Bianco, the president and founder of Bianco Research, talking about the story of today, uh, which is the drive lower in benchmark government bond yields globally in developed markets. And I'm trying to figure out, Jim, what exactly does this say about risk assets? Because up until now, lower yields has meant support for riskier credits as well as equities. Is this time different with respect to that, too? It's getting there. You're definitely right that normally you would have seen um, lower yields be somewhat supportive. But I think that the reason you're starting to see risk assets wobble with falling interest rates is that there is a heightened fear of too low inflation. Let me, let me put a definition on that. Why do we worry that inflation is too low? Because in the next recession, and there will be one at some point, we haven't repealed the business cycle, inflation will fall. If we start that recession with a 1% inflation rate, the fear is it will fall to deflation, which is very stressful on the financial services community, very stressful on the banking system. And that's what the Fed will pull out, and all central banks will pull out all stops to prevent deflation. And one of the ways they try to do it is let's not start at a very low inflation rate. So I think what you're seeing in risk assets is as interest rates go down and as uh, risk assets fall, a classic risk-off sentiment that is worrying that we might start to see too low of inflation. I don't know if I'd go as far as deflation, but too low and definitely not where you'd want to start if we're going to have a downturn. So, Jim, to what extent do you think this Federal Reserve is influenced by the market? There's certainly been some concerns that, uh, you know, the move in December and, the, and then the, the, the easing in, in the first part of the year were market influence. Is that a real concern? Yeah, I think it is a concern. And I was going to answer the question that they seem to be reactionary. There was plenty of evidence going into that December rate hike that the markets were unsettled by the idea of another rate hike. The markets were unsettled by automatic pilot with the balance sheet continuing to move lower. And the Fed pushed ahead with it anyway, and it kind of blew up in their face. Remember that the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 600 points during the one hour of Jay Powell's December press conference. And then two weeks later, he did what we now euphemistically call the Powell pivot, where he said, okay, forget everything I said on December 19th. Here's the new scenario. We're not going to be raising rates nearly as much, and we're going to back off on the uh, balance sheet. So I wish they would be a little bit more uh, proactive in looking at what markets are telling them instead of reactive. Just we'll do what we'll do what the models and the academics say until the markets blow up, and then we'll just completely reverse ourselves. That's not a good way to run policy. Just quickly here, what what's the next recession going to look like? Is it going to be a repeat of 2008? Uh, if you can tell me if there's an over-levered sector that could actually drag the economy down, 
then yeah, it could be, but I don't see that. And I don't see that in the leverage loan space as well, too. I think the thing that could really hurt this economy, which is what I think the markets were signaling in the fall, is higher interest rates. As the old saying goes, um, usually the Fed raises rates till something breaks. Well, we got the three and a quarter on the 10-year in the fall, and all of a sudden the market seemed to get, you know, they didn't break, but they got really wobbly uh, at that point. As long as interest rates don't shoot higher, I think that this, if we have another recession, I'm not saying we will, but when we do, uh, it will be a, more of the garden variety. If it comes on the back of spiking inflation and driving up interest rates with all the debt we have, that could be problematic. But like I said, the problem now is too low inflation, not too high inflation. Jim Bianco, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research, also a contributor to uh, B- Bloomberg Opinion. In March of this year, an upstart mobile phone manufacturer entered the market with what it bills as the state-of-the-art mobile handsets and wireless connectivity at an unbeatable value. And we, I took a look at the phone. It is very cool. To help us walk us through this story, John Paul DeJuria. John Paul is the co-founder and CEO of ROK Group, also the CEO and co-founder of Paul Mitchell and Patron Spirits. I believe Patron was sold to Bacardi in 2018 for $5.1 billion or something. That was the valuation. That was the valuation. Congratulations (laughs) on that trade. Uh, John Paul, thanks so much for joining us. You walked in, you showed us this phone, and what amazed Lisa and I was there's 3D stuff and we weren't watching, we didn't have glasses on. Yeah, it's 3D without glasses, a technological breakthrough. And it's a rocket phone, like a rocket ship going on the moon, R-O-K-I-T, rocket phone. And it's very, very advanced. Uh, the phone has dual SIMs. It has, uh, it's unblocked for the world, which is kind of cool. Wi-Fi comes with it and a year's worth of telemedicine plus other little bundles we have. Uh, I think what really blows people away is not only is it advanced, and two cameras, regular camera and 3D camera. But blows most people away is the price, especially the retail here in the United States and the consumers. We wanted to have a little bit of profit, not a lot, but get them out there. The price on the phone is our big one. It's only $299. And our normal one, which is what most smartphones are, is $199. That's the retail price. And that comes with the 3D and everything. And you don't have to be attached to any carrier. You go with any carrier you want, any plan you want. Because remember, it's worldwide Wi-Fi. So you can make calls all over the world free. You know, Paul said that he was struck by the phone. I was struck by uh, John Paul DeJoria, your enthusiasm for it and the sparkle and and, and just sort of your energy, given the fact. And, and to, what was interesting to me is sort of it explains how you uh, at one point were homeless and ended up co-founding Paul Mitchell and, uh, and Patron Spirits. And now you've moved into phones and, and sure. sort of the energy uh, that sort of drove that. I'm just wondering uh, here, your focus on content is very interesting interesting because a lot of other uh, big uh, cell phone companies and tech companies have been trying to move into the media space. How did you do it here? Well, we ended up with this great technology of 3D that actually works on a smartphone. It actually will work. Uh, people have tried it before, didn't come across as good. Anyways, came across really great. So once we had that and we started tying up exclusives on content, we were anticipating this would work. So we went to studios and think of it, if you have a 3D movie, it's in the theater or IMAX, but after it's there, it sits on the shelf. 
because there's no other you know format to put it on. Well, so we took it off the shelf, gave them some money for it, of course, paid you know some nice money for it, and then got the exclusive on it for the next three to five years with these various things. So it all kind of was in harmony, and we're so excited. I know that it was unbelievable. Like, for example, take Walmart, who's starting to launch it June 17th in their stores, and right behind that is Costco and many others. But Walmart couldn't, was hard to believe. They sent a team over to Asia to check out where they're made, how perfectly they were made. They worked exactly as we said, and we had the capacity to make a lot. And they said, yeah, this is great. So uh, right now, the only place you get it now would be either on Walmart's uh, website or go to rocket, R-O-K-I-T.com. So talk to me about the pricing a little bit, the, 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 the handset pricing you mentioned. How about some of the packages that are surrounding it? If, if, if I want to get these 3D movies and maybe the telemedicine and all that kind of stuff, how are you guys packaging that? Yeah, we have these unbelievable bundles. The best ways to tell your audience and yourself, especially small businesses that can't afford insurance, life insurance or health insurance for their staff, our most expensive bundle that you could put on any smartphone, by the way, is only $14.95 a month. But here's what happens to a small business for $14.95 a month per family or per phone. The whole family uses it. You have $100,000 worth of accidental life insurance, $20,000 worth of burial insurance. So the beneficiary gets some money. Telemedicine, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. A doctor's on the phone with you, diagnosing you and writing you a prescription if necessary and sending it down or saying, hey, you're the 20% that go see, go see a regular doctor emergency immediately. And then roadside assistance, similar to a AAA. And then uh, uh, legal advice, $1,000 worth of legal advice. And the great thing for cities and business people is one hour a week of a therapist on the phone with you. That's our big bundle. That's our $14. And we post it for $4, $5, you know, other little bundles, but that gives you an idea. So we want to change the game and make affordable for everybody insurance and things of that nature. You know, there, there are a lot of aspects to this. You're sort of at the epicenter of a lot of the revolutions that are going on right now. One of them people talk about is the slowdown in the smartphone market. And I'm wondering, you know, how you're sort of fitting in there. I understand that your, your product is different, but uh, not only is there a slowdown in demand, but there also are pressures when it comes to trade tensions and supply chains. 100% correct. On these particular phones, what makes a difference is we put an entire family's lifestyle or a good portion of it in the phone. We're out of that phone. You have your insurance, you have your roadside assistance, you have a therapist, you have emergency, you know, medical things, the doctor on the phone. So the big change is, and people say, oh my God, this, this does five or 10 things for me at a very low cost. And your rocket phone is just, you know, pretty incredible. So we're a whole different avenue. As we thought years ago, what we need to step up so that we could compete and give the public something they don't have right now. And we have the patent, by the way, on bundling on cellular phones. 20 seconds, do you sell anyone's data or do you collect it? Excuse me? Do you sell anyone's data that you collect? No, we don't take, collect anybody's data, nor do we sell them the data. And by the way, most of the parts are not made in China. They're made in other places, especially <laughs> the United States shipped there. I and just, China wants to distribute our phones because they can't get the content. I ask that just simply because if everybody's talking to their therapists on the phone, you know, they might be worried about that. No, 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 we don't do any of that. No, we don't collect hey. anything. We collect, no, we're, we're all about peace, love, and happiness. It's like the culture at all the Paul Mitchell schools. Our peace, love, and happiness is 
the hairstylist. How do you have peace, love, and happiness in your life? One of them is that you don't have to be afraid of anybody listening in or, or tampering with your freedom and privacy in our great country. John Paul DeGioia, thank you so much for being here with Always us. Always a pleasure. John Paul DeGioia is co-founder and chief executive officer of The Rock Group, talking about his rocket phone. Also uh, the CEO and co-founder of Paul Mitchell and Patron Spirits. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.